Gang, get comfortable and take your Bible and go to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter's at the tail end of your New Testament. Uh, if you go to the book of Revelation all the way at the back, you come back about four books, you'll find 2 Peter, okay? Uh, you guys did a good job. I appreciate that. It's a bunch of student band there and old man Chad. Yeah, <clears throat> you guys did a great job. Um, take your Bible. Again, 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll get to Genesis in just a moment. Every now and then, my satellite provider will tease me with extra channels that I don't pay for. They'll send you these extra channels, and they'll send me a little message saying, we've upgraded you to the ultimate platinum something or other, and for the next 10 days, you'll re be receiving these extra channels that are premium channels, and uh, you get to watch those for free, and then they want you to call and, you know, up your your package, your programming, that sort of thing. I never do because I refuse to pay that much money for television. However, there are a few channels whenever this happens that, boy, I record as much as I can on those channels. One of them is the Smithsonian Channel. You familiar with this channel? Now, I dig the Smithsonian Channel because I love shows about geography. I love shows about, uh, you know, aerospace technology, science, that sort of thing. About a year ago, I was watching one of those shows, and they posed a question, could you build a rocket out of wood and launch it into space? And immediately I thought about changing the channel because I can answer that question for you. <laughs> you can build it, but it's not going to fly. But it turns out you can. It turns out that rockets have been built out of wood up until the 1960s in all of their testing. In fact, the Russians built multiple rockets out of wood and scale replicas of the real thing to kind of pre-test and pre-measure everything that is necessary to safely travel into outer space. I thought to myself, wow, that's intriguing. I would have assumed that wood just wasn't strong enough, but they had scientist after scientist and engineer after engineer from USC and MIT, and they, they assured me, the viewer, uh, that you can build a rocket out of wood. It can make it into space through the Earth's atmosphere, but once it got into space, you'd have a lot of problems. Well, I was reminded that we built airplanes out of wood until the late 1930s, and they must be pretty strong until we transitioned into flexible metals and lighter, stronger metals. So maybe wood could do the job. Believe it or not, we've built submarines out of wood. Now, that just doesn't even... You ever try to get a barrel underwater? How in the world are you going to build a submarine out of wood? And yet, it's been done before worldwide. The wooden rocket would survive the stress of a, lock, a rocket launch. It would make it into outer space. And according to these scientists, wood could do the job. Today, in our greatest hits in the book of Genesis, we're going to examine another wooden structure. It's called the Ark. And the hero of that story is a man by the name of Noah. Now, the ark was a huge, huge boat. I've got a picture of, a, of not just a replica, but a life-size model of Noah's ark. It is a massive undertaking to build such a craft with primitive tools many, many thousands of years ago. Noah's ark, in case you don't know, for scale size, dwarfs ancient cruising ships, ancient battleships up all the way into the 17th century. It would take three Columbus Santa Marias stacked end to end, actually a little more than three, to reach the length and the scope and the size of 
Noah's Ark. That boat, as Noah built it, is about half as large as one of our massive cruise ships that sails around the world. Well, the question is posed, could a boat, homemade as it was, ancient as it is, could that boat actually float? Could it sail, so to speak, and could it survive during rough seas? Guess what? The Smithsonian Channel has answered that question. Believe it or not, the answer is yes. Scientists and Marine biologists and engineers all around the world, especially in the United States, who probably don't believe a boat like that was ever really constructed. Certainly, if it was, they don't believe a universal flood actually occurred, but they were honest enough to explore that issue for us and help us come to realize that a boat that size could be seaworthy and could survive in rough seas. Now, why wouldn't someone want to just embrace the biblical story of Noah and the ark? That's something that's easy to do in the 70s when you're a little kid in Sunday school. But what about now that you're in your 40s and your 50s? Now with your college degree. Now in modern America, 2020, the 21st century, modern American evolved culture. Why in the world wouldn't someone simply want to embrace what the Bible says about that massive wooden structure? Well, I'll tell you why. The answer comes from 2 Peter chapter 3. Look at verse 3. Peter is describing what's going to happen someday. Follow me. Verse 3, chapter 3. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, whenever the Bible uses the term last days, it's referring to the days, the time period, the years prior to the return of Jesus Christ. You remember, on many occasions, Jesus told his audience, there will be a coming kingdom of God. I am going away, but I will return. Peter writes, in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. You know what a scoffer is? A scoffer is a self-indulgent individual who offers no real information or contribution of their own. They merely stand back and criticize yours. That's what a scoffer is. The internet is full up to here of scoffers right? They offer no real information of their own. They stand back and poke holes in your argument and point fingers at yours. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about scoffers. Verse 4, those scoffers will say, where is this coming that he promised? Where is this second coming that Jesus promised? They go on, ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Then Peter jumps in, verse 5. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Verse 6. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. That is a reference to the universal flood in Noah's day. Peter believed it. The question I'm posing today is to you. In our present culture, people not only ignore the story of the flood, uh, you don't hear it taught in many churches, modern day American churches, they actually scoff at the idea. They say, can you possibly believe that the world, the earth, the globe was covered in water for hundreds of days and that God destroyed every living thing save those eight people and those animals 
in that giant wooden boat. You can't be serious. Do you really believe there was a worldwide flood? Do you? Well, Jesus did. Jesus did. Uh, Turn your Bible back to Luke chapter 17. On multiple occasions, as I indicated earlier, Jesus pointed to the return of the Son of God. He said, I'm leaving, but I'm going to come again, and I'm going to bring about the kingdom of God. It's coming. It's coming. It's in the future. It hadn't happened yet, but it will come someday. In doing so, he compared it to the days of Noah. Luke 17, look at verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. That's a reference to himself. uh, Jesus is using one literal, real, historical, actual event in the past to assure his audience there's another coming in the future. He did that quite often. So, verse 27, people were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying and being given in marriage up until the day Noah entered the ark. In other words, before the flood came in the Old Testament, it was business as usual. People were eating and drinking and going to work. They were getting married and giving in marriage. And Jesus is saying, in the days prior to my return, it will be the same. On earth, it will be business as usual. Then then it says, then the flood came and destroyed them all. Jesus not only believed, Jesus knew that a universal flood in the days of Noah actually occurred. So, is that enough for you? For many Christ followers, that's plenty. If Jesus said it happened, then it happened. That's good enough for me. But that's not the case for the majority of mankind. You see, the world around us is not so likely to embrace a Bible story, especially one as fantastic as this one, just because Jesus said it was historical. For them, it's a question of reasonability. I mean, is that reasonable? Why would God do that? Could that actually happen? Is it reasonable to believe that Noah's flood actually occurred? Well, I'll state my reputation and my career on it. Yes, it is. It is very reasonable to believe in a universal worldwide flood just as the Bible describes. In fact, there are several reasons you should believe in a worldwide flood. I could keep you here for the next three hours pulling up website after website, pointing to piece of evidence after piece of evidence. For the sake of time, let me just throw you a handful. Let's notice, first of all, the physical evidence worldwide of a worldwide flood. Now, listen very carefully. The scientific world does not discount the evidence of a worldwide, all-consuming, devastating flood. They just want to debate the time frame and the scope. In other words, there's not a reputable scientist out there, a geologist or a historian, a scientist, who debates that at one time there was a devastating flood. The question is, did it happen the way the Bible says it happened? Did it happen in that time frame? And did it actually cover the surface of the globe? An hour on the internet this afternoon, just 60 minutes, will open anybody's eyes to the overwhelming evidence that supports Noah's flood. The discrepancies lie in how quickly the waters rose and how quickly the waters receded. Let me read you something. If you'll turn back to Genesis chapter 7, we'll begin our way through this story. 
The story actually is uh, comprised of uh, three or four chapters. We're just going to hit some highlights from two or three of them. Look at uh, chapter 7 and verse 18. Here's what the Bible says. The waters, now keep in mind at this point the ark has already been constructed. The family has already been loaded. Two kinds, two kinds of animals have been loaded. Everything's ready. The rain has fallen. It continues to fall. 40 days, 40 nights, constant rain, and the ark begins to float. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth. The ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. That's more than 23 feet. So what the Bible is telling you is that so much water came up from the depths of the earth and fell from the vapor canopy surrounding the earth that the entire globe was covered with thousands of feet of water. So much so that the highest mountain on planet earth was submerged by at least 23 feet of water. For over a month, the floodwaters covered every mountain on the earth. That's what the Bible says. That's pretty drastic, isn't it? Is there proof of that? Surely if something that big, that devastating actually occurred, there would be some physical evidence that we could measure. Well, guess what? There is plenty there's plenty. Let me show you uh, a picture of a fish. This is a fossil. Okay, you know what a fossil is? A fossil is something that has been preserved in the rock. It's been preserved for millennia. Fossils have been found that scientists estimate are hundreds of thousands of years old. The dating system might be debatable, but nonetheless, we know that this is an ancient saltwater fish, and guess where it was found? On a mountain, on the top of a mountain, thousands of feet above sea level. And it's not just one. Listen to me, church, there are thousands of marine fossils, everything from shark's teeth to seashells to this. That's a picture of a whale. That is a fossilized saltwater whale. Do you know where that was found? The Andes Mountains of South America. How does a whale of this size wind up on the top of a mountain? Now, again, scientists don't debate that this actually happened. They debate how it happened. And what's interesting about the whole narrative on the Internet, I read an article from the Weather Channel. The Weather Channel says that, sure, fossils of whales and sea creatures have been found on mountaintops, but it didn't happen during a worldwide flood, even though that makes a lot of sense to someone like me. Here's what happens, according to the Weather Channel. Millions of years ago, you see, that's always where we have to begin, do you understand? Because in order for an evolutionary premise to be considered reasonable, since it cannot be measured in real life today... We have to extend the timeline. Everything has to take millions of years to occur. Because if it could happen quickly, well, then we ought to be able to go out there right now and point to evidence of transitioning species. And while we can find plenty of evidence of natural selection, the way that 
Uh, species can adapt to its surroundings over long periods of time and sometimes relatively short periods of times. We do not have any evidence around us of missing links. One species transitioning into another species. Why? Well, an evolutionist will tell you that's because it takes millions of years for this to occur. So, again, the question, how does a whale, a fossilized whale formation, wind up on the top of a mountain in South America? Well, the Weather Channel has a good answer for that. You see, millions of years ago, the plates under the ocean bed collided, and they pushed up mountains. And unlike every other thing that happens on the evolutionary chain, this didn't take millions of years. This happened relatively quickly. There is an exception for this rule. The exception is it happened so quickly that the whale couldn't escape and wound up on the top of a mountain. You see, in order for an evolutionary theory to sound reasonable, it has to take millions of years until they run into something like this, where there is no explanation, and now all of a sudden there's an exception. It's interesting to me because worldwide we're not talking about a handful of fossilized sea creature remains. We're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands. And we're not just talking about in one place. We're talking about the Himalayas. We're talking about the Swiss Alps. We're talking about the Rockies. We're talking about the Andes. We're talking about mountains in China, mountains in Africa, mountains in South America. Worldwide, we found thousands of fossilized sea creatures on mountaintops. That's fascinating to me. But wait, there's more. Turn over one page in your Bible to chapter 8. Look at chapter 8 and verse 2. The Bible says, Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed. Here's what scientists believe, both creation scientists as well as evolutionary scientists. That many, 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 many years ago, the earth had a, a vapor barrier surrounding it. It's one of the reasons I believe the the, the lifespans in the Old Testament are so much longer than ours today because this thick vapor barrier, filter, uh, vapor barrier filtered the UV rays from the sun and allowed human beings to live a lot longer than they live today. You read about people living three and four hundred years uh, in the Old Testament. But during the flood, that collapsed. And also during the flood, the Bible reveals that all the springs of the earth just belched up their water. All the water the earth can hold, it came to the surface. That's how the flood waters rose as it rained. Now, the springs of the deep had been closed. The rain had stopped falling from the sky. So the 40 days of rain and all of the rising flood waters, that's over. The water receded, verse 3, steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. Here's the part it brings about disagreement and discrepancy. As I said earlier, no scientist denies the physical evidence of some kind of devastating worldwide or close to worldwide flood event. The question is, how fast did it take? The Bible says it took 40 days to flood, and then it took 150 days for those waters to recede. Now, I'm going to ask you something. When we have one of those three, four, five-day rains in the winter, and water begins to flood through your yard and into the back and out through the branch. What happens when all that water goes away? You can tell exactly where it was, can't you? The grass is laid down. There's a lot of debris from the neighbor's yard that's washed into yours, right? It's, it's sucked the mulch out from around your flowers, and it's created a trail of mulch. When a flood occurs, whether it's in New Orleans for a hurricane or Florida or anywhere else, when the flood waters recede, you can always tell the water has been there. It's 
residue of silt and, and sandstone and limestone. Well, you would think then that if a flood of this magnitude actually encompassed the globe, there would be incredible evidence as to the remnants, the leaving, the rushing away of all the water. And guess what? There is. Ever been to the Grand Canyon? Raise your hand if you've been to the Grand Canyon. Is that an incredible sight or what? Any of the canyons in the United States have always fascinated me because here's this enormous canyon, obviously cut by amazing amounts of water, and yet you look down at the bottom, there's this little trickling stream, so it looks like. Scientists don't deny that water created the canyon. They deny where that water came from or who produced that water. Let me show you this. Well, you see that. See, that's what it looks like when massive amounts of water retreat and run off. Now, what's interesting is all throughout the Grand Canyon, we can measure the silt, the sandstone, the limestone. We can follow the trail, and they appear to be massive in amount. In fact, we've got another picture here that's a graphic. It's like animated. Throw that one up there, Greg. Oh, there's the Grand Canyon there. See, all of those layers can be measured. They can be calculated. We can determine which way the water was flowing. Incidentally, do you know what fascinates scientists? In our own Grand Canyon, at the top of those rock formations, we have fossilized land and sea creatures. We have found Fossil remains of both land and sea creatures. Now, here's the kicker. What's fascinating to me about this is that these particular animals who appear to have died at the same time because they're fossilized in the same rock, according to the evolutionary timeline, were a million years apart. They should never have existed at the same moment in time, and yet there they are frozen in the record, the fossilized record. Say, well, how could that happen? Well, of course, there's another explanation. It involves another one of those exceptions to the rules of evolution. I say it occurred because animals were trying to retreat from rising floodwaters, and when they died, they were encapsulated in the same place. Here, one last graph. This is animated. Do you know that those same silt residues that we can see obvious in the Grand Canyon and its layered formations... Geologists can track them up through Canada, over through Greenland, into England, and down through Europe. Do you uh, know the white cliffs of Dover? You ever heard, seen those or been there, seen pictures? These beautiful white chalk stone cliffs in England. Those chalk formations can be traced through out England, into Europe, and down into the Middle East. You know what that tells scientists? That at some point in our past, enormous amounts of water shed across England and Europe and into the Middle East. There are amazing amounts of evidence, physical and otherwise, regarding a worldwide flood. Is that my last picture? Is that number five? I believe it is. All right, let's move on. Again, a simple Google search this afternoon will blow your mind. It'll reveal mountains of evidence in support of a worldwide flood. If you want to accept some other explanation as to how this physical evidence was produced, then I've got to ask you a question. If you want to do mental gymnastics to kind of hop through hoops and hopscotch the facts in order to avoid admitting that the Bible is accurate, 
I got to ask you a question. Why is it so difficult for you to believe God? Why is it so difficult for you to trust God? Not only physical evidence, here's number two, historical evidence. Historical evidence. In addition to mountains of physical evidence for a worldwide universal flood, there are also historical evidences of Noah's flood. A number of cultures have flood narratives. Do you know what that means? In fact, here, I'll put this on the screen. Did you know that there are over 270 flood cultures all around the world? Now, here's what I mean by that. Apart from a Jewish heritage, the Old Testament Hebrew Bible, apart from a Jewish heritage, apart from a Christian heritage, there are more than 270 cultures around the world. They speak different languages, different economically, different socially, no Jewish heritage, no Christian heritage, but all of them all around the world from South America to Africa to Asia have a flood narrative in their ancient history. In other words, as part of their history, somebody kept telling a story about an ancient, all-consuming, devastating flood. It's fascinating when you read up on this because they all share such similarity. They all share, for instance, that the world had gone evil. It was evil, and the Creator had enough and destroyed the planet with a flood. Eight people survived, along with representatives from the animal kingdom. They all even share the idea of a dove being released to see if it goes and finds land. Here's the kicker. In all of these varying cultures, in all of these different languages, the hero's story, the hero of the story, his name is remarkably similar to Noah. One is named No. One is named Nuh. One is called Nuh-uh. <laughs> Nuh-uh. One is called Na, Nas, Nu, Nu'u, and of course, Noah. Now, maybe you're thinking, so what? So what? Who cares whether or not the Old Testament story of Noah and the flood is a true account or if it's some sort of made-up analogy to just simply make a point? I mean, after all, we're like New Testament people. We follow Jesus. We're not really about the Old Testament. In fact, many of you, when you look at your Bible, you see two different gods. You see a judgmental God, full of condemnation in the Old Testament, ready to smite the enemy. And then in the New Testament, there's Jesus, and he's loving, and he's kind, and he's full of grace. There are many people, mistakenly, who assume that there are two different gods in the Bible. The Old Testament is the God of judgment. The New Testament is the God of grace. No, I can point to all kinds of grace in the Old Testament. Do you know it took Noah 120 years to build the ark? Why didn't God just float one up on the seashore, the beach? Boom, there you go, Noah. There's your boat. Why did Noah build it? Why did he have to take 120 years to build it? The Bible teaches because God was giving man time to repent, time to turn. Before God sent Joshua into the promised land and said, take it, take the land, drive them all out, slaughter the king, wipe out the enemy. He gave them 400 years to change their mind, to turn. Well, that's Old Testament. We're used to that kind of condemnation, that kind of judgment in the Old Testament. If you believe that, I want you to read Revelation chapter 14 this afternoon when you get home. Revelation chapter 14 describes a time that is coming. 
when men, women, and children will cry out for rocks to fall on them because they're afraid to face the wrath of the Lamb. You know who the Lamb is? Jesus Christ. The God of your Bible is both righteous and just. That's why he judges. And yet gracious and merciful. That's why he saves. Noah's flood is central to the message of judgment and salvation. The reason it matters is because Noah's flood is central to the idea of God's being righteous. He will not tolerate unrighteousness. And yet, God being gracious, he is willing to save. In fact, this is big, and this is what I want to make sure you get. The flood is a symbol of God's righteous judgment and his willingness to save. Remember, your Bible fits together. That's why it's important to study it as a whole, not just pieces and parts of it. One part illustrates another part. We get a third part to help us understand the first part. Even though these parts were written 15, 16, 1700 years apart, even though they occurred in different time zones on different continents, even though the author who wrote them down may be different in a variety of ways, they all fit together. That's what makes the book so special, so unique so divinely inspired. So Jesus said in Luke 17, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. He's using something that happened in the Old Testament to point towards something that's yet to come. I want to read you something from 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. I'll put it on the screen. Peter wrote, if God did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. See, the flood emphasizes the fact that our God is a righteous God. And there's going to come a point where he doesn't tolerate our evil any longer. He's had it up to here. That's what the flood teaches. It happened before. It's going to happen again. You can bank on it. But now, as you might imagine, when you start talking about judgment and pointing to the judgment of Noah's flood, that's where you lose a lot of people. Because a lot of people, even a lot of modern church people, they're just not into that part of the message. While I was studying to put this message together, I came across this meme right here. I want to show you. Big kind of replica of the ark. Now look what it says. Ah, yes. The uplifting story where God massacres every living thing on the planet, including millions of men, women, and children. How charming. Because he loved them. Does that bother you? It bothers me. See? It bothers me greatly because it's a cheap shot. And as I'm trying to show you this morning, it's not very well thought out. You see, the basic assumption of a meme like this and the basic motivation and reasoning for a lot of people who discount the story of Noah and the flood is based on the idea or the assumption that the people who died in the flood didn't deserve judgment. They were just innocent bystanders. They were just precious, innocent people, and God slaughtered them. So I reject your story, I reject your book, I reject the God of your book. Let me ask you a question. Were they innocent? Were they innocent? Of course not. In fact, they were not only not in innocent, 
They were so corrupt that God couldn't stand it anymore. He regretted creating them. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. Listen to this. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time, and he regretted that he had made human beings. Now, here's what I want you to understand, and I'll quit. You need to understand this connection. Why wouldn't someone want to accept the biblical account of a universal flood? Why is it so hard for someone to accept? It's not because the story seems fantastic and unbelievable. Look, putting a man in a rocket and shooting him to the moon, he gets out and walks on the surface of the moon. That's unbelievable. That's fantastic. But we all accept that as fact. Why wouldn't we accept this as fact? Well, the answer might surprise you. Then again, it may not. Because the answer speaks to the self-sovereignty of man. Because here's why. If you accept Noah's flood, then you become accountable to his God. If you accept a worldwide flood actually occurred, then I become accountable to his God. The Bible says that the world was so evil that it sickened the very heart of God. Let me ask you a question. You think the world's that evil now? It's easy in this arena, the arena of theology, because you know your Bible to say, yes, the world is evil. But I'm not so sure we really believe that. I think especially in southeastern rural Georgia, we can insulate ourselves. We have the opportunity to insulate ourselves from the evil of mankind. Nobody's burning our city down. Nobody's shooting up our schools. Evil can easily be overlooked in our culture. We can set up comfortable, insulated lives apart from all that might harm us. But listen to me very carefully, church. In my world, I see it all too often. Substance abuse is all around us. Drug addiction is all around us. Pornography that's ruining marriages, some of the most twisted, perverted things you could ever possibly imagine, it's all around us, even in our community. Physical abuse is all around us. Sexual abuse, even of children, is all around us. It's there. You might not see it because you're comparing evil in the world to evil in you. But let me remind you of something. It's not about how evil you are. It's about how evil we are. You see, we are part of a human race that was once judged by God and will be judged again. In the world of golf, if you've ever played golf, you're going to know what I'm about to describe. They have a, a, a saying that winning is not about how good your good shots are. It's how good your bad shots are. That's how you win. See, and if you're a golfer, you totally get that. If you're not a golfer, let me make sure I explain it real quick. You see, to win on the golf course, you don't simply hit good shots because the other guy's going to hit good shots too. He's going to hit better shots than you hit, probably, if you're playing with me. It's a question of how good are your bad shots. When you miss the target, how close are you? Well, think about this. When considering my relationship with a holy God, it's not about how good is my best shot. It's not about how you are the kindest person I know. You are so generous. Man, you're unselfish. It's not about that. 
It's about how close to the mark are you when you miss. That's what it's about. And the Bible says we've all missed the target. It's in Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned. That means missed the target. And fallen short of God's glory. That's why we need a Savior. Not a do-over, not a second chance. Not a we'll get them next time. We need a Savior. And the same God who judged sin then will judge sin again. Enter Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith. Dorothy Sayers said this, If a man will not understand the meaning of judgment, they'll never come to understand, I would add, and appreciate the meaning of grace. If a man will not understand the meaning of judgment, you'll never understand the meaning of grace. The flood teaches both. Next time... Here's what we're going to learn. The God who flooded was the very same God who saved. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for the privilege of communicating something this powerful and profound to your church. God, may it strengthen our faith in you, your holiness, your righteousness. God, may it encourage each one of us as we simply attempt to try and follow your son because he's the one who covers our sins that we might walk in your grace and know your love. We pray it because of him in faith with thanksgiving. Amen. Hey, God bless you, Grace Community Church. Hope you make it a great week. I will see you next time.